If you would, please turn to the book of Jude, which is the last book of the Bible before Revelation. And we're going to look at verses 24 and 25, and please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Normally at this time, I'm in the uh, high school room and have the privilege of teaching the the high schoolers, but uh, this morning I get to be with you, and I'm excited about that. And I get to share this morning from uh, one of my most favorite verses in the Bible, or uh, a couple of verses, verses 24 and 25. Uh, You know, we have different categories of favorite verses, I think. Um, But for me, Jude verses 24 and 25 are probably the verses in the Bible that move me emotionally more than any other verses in the whole Bible. And uh, I think that there's a reason for that, and uh, we're going to look at that here this morning. Starting in verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. And Lord, I come before you this morning and pray that you would give me the words to communicate just even some of the the truth and the promise and the hope that are wrapped up in this verse. And God, I pray for all of us here that our hearts would be open to how you would move in us and how you would change us and how you would uh, encourage us through these verses and through this time. We pray this in your name. Amen. may be seated. The book of Jude was written by the half-brother of Jesus. He was writing to fellow believers to contend earnestly for the faith. And specifically, he was encouraging them to contend against false teaching, to contend against apostasy. And at the end of the letter, he's addressing a concern that the readers of his letter may have had while they're reading the rest of the letter. And that is, what if we, as we're we're contending for the faith, and we're contending in the face of such evil and such opposition, and what if we get mixed up in this, and what if we're stained in the process? What if we're singed by the fire? What if, what if we're polluted? What if, and can we lose our faith? Can we not be saved anymore? That would have to be the thoughts of the readers of the letter going through to that point based on what Jude was communicating to them throughout the rest of the letter. And so Jude ends this letter with a great doctrinal promise that ultimately explodes in a sweeping statement of worship. And that's what we're looking at today. Verse 24 begins, now to him. So we have a him identified right off the bat, and then he defines that further in verse 25. He says, to him or to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So so Jude is beginning this this final statement with a a direction towards God, towards God through Jesus. And and he's, he's ascribing attributes to God. He's ascribing to God glory and majesty, dominion and authority and this word authority, by the way, is just the, the power to do anything. And, and Jude is ascribing these attributes to God. Now, he's not giving these attributes to God. God already has all glory and all majesty and all dominion and all authority, all power. There's nothing we or Jude or anyone can give to God in that regard that Jude or that God doesn't already have. So when, when Jude says, to him be all these things, he's not giving it to God. He's acknowledging truth about God. We should note here that 
Worship always includes recognition of truth about God. Worship always includes recognition of truth about God. But what brings about this great statement of worship and praise from Jude? Well, notice in verse 24, right in the middle, or actually at the end of verse 24, he says, um, and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, and there are the three words that I'm particularly drawn to, with great joy. I want to know about this great joy. This, this, this great joy that Jude is talking about, it's the anticipation and appreciation of this, this great joy that leads Jude to burst forth in declaring his awe of God. We see here that, that joy is tied to worship. Worship and joy are intrinsically tied together in a reciprocal relationship. And in this verse, we get just a glimpse of the foundation of what makes heaven so heavenly. Heaven is heaven because that's where we bask in the glory of God. And we bask in the glory of God with great joy. We were made for His glory. Think about it. We're inclined for greatness, for majesty, for beauty. We have a built-in attraction and desire for that which is greater than us, for that which is majestic, for that which stuns us with beauty. That's why we're left in awe of beautiful sunsets. It's why the vastness of the ocean from the beach can be so mesmerizing. It's why the stars in the sky on a clear desert night can just take your breath away. It's why we can be infatuated with musicians and singers and athletes and actors. We're attracted to greatness. It's why millions of people will wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning to tune in to watch royal weddings. We're drawn to the pageantry, to the royalty, to the beauty of such events. But all of these things, even if they're good, they're only faint shadows of what's truly majestic, what's truly great, and what's truly beautiful, and that is Almighty God. Our souls have, have a built-in magnetic pull towards greatness, towards majesty and beauty, because we're hardwired for the ultimate one who satisfies us completely. Anything else in this world leaves us less than satisfied. But he's the one that we were made for, to be satisfied in his greatness, in his beauty, in his majesty. And we need to see all created beauty and majesty simply as foretastes of glory divine. It's just a, a taste of the glory that's to come, the taste of the real glory that's the glory of the creator of all things. And we find our joy in the presence of his glory, and our joy spills over into worship. And we'll worship for all of eternity, not out of compulsion or obligation. We don't worship God in heaven because God says, worship me, and we're all bowing down like robots. We're worshiping him because we want to, because he satisfies our every need, our want, our desire. In him is everything that we could ever want or hope for and more, and we're so blown away by it, we can't help but worship, and we're, we're doing it with great joy. Worship is joy, and we worship out of joy. They're tied together. You can't separate worship and joy. And This is eternity. The reality is that the foundation of joy that flows for eternity is the same fountain that we can go to for joy here in this life. The reason that these verses move me at, a, at an emotional level is, is that in the middle of the trials of life, in the middle of hard times, when life is difficult, these verses are my north star that lead me to joy. They lead me to worship. The hope in these verses is what gets me through life. 
This is the hope that the writer of Hebrews was talking about when he talks about the hope that's the anchor of our soul. Take away the truth of these verses and life would crush me in a nanosecond. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Where does this joy come from? Ultimate joy comes from standing blameless in the presence of God's glory. That's the key, standing blameless in the presence of God's glory. Being in the presence of God's glory is either the greatest horror in the universe or it's the fountain of greatest joy. Consider Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. If you want to just turn there real quick. Isaiah chapter 6, you have this picture of Isaiah coming into the temple and he says, I saw the Lord exalted I'm sorry, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe, filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Can you see the, the picture here? Here's Isaiah coming into the temple, and he sees the Lord. And we know from John chapter 12 he's talking about the Lord Jesus, specifically sitting on his throne. And, and he's not just some king sitting on his throne, but this is God Almighty sitting on his throne, and there's angels floating around him and they've got wings that, are, that they're flying with and covering, covering their face and, and feet and, and they're calling out to one another and they're calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And they're not whispering this. Verse 4 says, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. They're saying this so loud that the very foundations of the temple are shaking. That's the volume that they're, they're calling this out. And the smoke is, or the temple is filling with smoke. This is, this is the picture of Isaiah coming into the glory of God. And how does Isaiah respond? He says, woe is me for I am ruined. Literally, I'm coming undone. I'm falling apart. I'm in the presence of the glory of God and I can't take it. He so acutely felt his sin that he was coming undone in the presence of the majesty and glory of God. He says, he says, because I'm a man of unclean lips, the most holy part of Isaiah, his mouth that spoke the words of God as a prophet of God, felt unclean in the presence of the glory and majesty of Almighty God. Well, God cleansed Isaiah. He sent the angel to, to burn away the sin, and, and Isaiah... Um, was able to, to, to stand in the presence of God, but it was a frightful experience. See, we have the promise of standing in the glory, in the majesty, in the awesomeness of the presence of God, blameless with great joy. If we're blameless, we get to experience great joy in the presence of God. If you're not blameless, you get to experience terror and despair. The key to great joy is being blameless in the presence of His glory. But note back in Jude 24, how are we blameless? It says there at the end of verse 24, and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless. He makes us stand in the presence of his glory, blameless. He does that. Romans 3.22 says that the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We come to him in faith. We recognize our sinfulness, our need for a substitute to, to bear our punishment. We see the value of the cross we put our faith and our trust in Jesus to be our punishment bearer. And God makes us 
righteous. He does it. He makes us righteous. He makes us look like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21. I think I've quoted this verse every time I've, I've preached here. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made Jesus to be sin on our behalf so that he got God's punishment and we got the righteousness of Jesus. We're made to look like Jesus when we place our faith in him. Looking like Jesus, being blameless, is the condition of being in the presence of God. It's the condition of experiencing glory, blameless with great joy. Looking like Jesus is the price of admission to heaven. And he's the one who paid the price to make you look like him, to make you blameless. And that's why every step that we take in life should be running toward the cross. If you're not running toward the cross, or at least walking, or better yet, crawling toward the cross, then you may not be covered by the righteousness of Christ. And if not, you won't be blameless in the presence of his glory. And that day will be a day of terror for you rather than ultimate joy. Run to the cross. See what Jesus did on the cross as the central focus in your life. Make it so important that everything else pales in comparison to the cross. Submit to Jesus. Make him Lord of your life. It's in dying to ourselves and living for him that we find ultimate joy. That's the paradox. We die to ourselves and we live for him. And that's where ultimate joy is found because he makes us blameless in the presence of his glory. Now this theology is not just for our intellectual understanding. Because if we do understand just, just a glimpse of this incomprehensible value of being blameless in the presence of God's glory, there should be, there has to be, there will be an emotional response. Great joy. We can't be in the presence of God without an emotional response. How do we get there? He makes us stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. But the beginning of the verse says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. He keeps us from stumbling. And here's the reality. We should fear stumbling. We should be scared to death of stumbling. There are scary verses in the Bible that talk about that. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2 says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which you are saved. You're saved. That's the good news. If, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you. So there's a condition to our being saved, holding fast to the word which was preached to you. Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, and he says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. So we've been reconciled to him when we were, we were rebellious against him. In order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's our hope. Then there's a condition. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. There's a condition to our salvation. If you do these things, if you continue in the faith, you stay established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. It seems like there are conditions on our salvation. And the reason it seems like there are conditions is because there are. But here's the great news. He's the one that fulfills the conditions. He keeps us from stumbling. He holds on to us. Yes, there are stages in life when we can fall away and, and, and God brings us back. 
He brings us back. He, he doesn't keep us from stumbling all the way. He doesn't keep us from abandoning the faith, from running from him. He brings us back. He holds on to us. If it was up to me to hold on to my faith, I would, I, I would lose it in a second. But God holds me. He keeps me. Great joy is assured to those who believe because he's the one who keeps us. This word here in, uh, in Jude 24, where he says, Now to him who is able to keep you. The word keep literally means to preserve from danger or harm or, or to guard. It's often used in the context of strength. It's the same word used in, in Luke chapter 11 and verse 21, talking about a, a strong man guarding his home and his possessions. The guarding is guarding from a position of strength. Now our family, we're, we're, we're a baseball family. Our, our lives... Um, our, we have a lot of our time taken up with baseball and my boys are really into baseball and even Abby gets into baseball and, um, I was reading an article about uh, a baseball team the Milwaukee Brewers the other day and it was talking about the first baseman for that team, Prince Fielder and uh, it was talking about how strong he is compared to everyone else in baseball and uh, let me read to you some of the things that his teammates said about him one, one person said He's even stronger than you think. His arms are so big, you could tattoo a map of the United States on one of his biceps and still have room for Argentina. <laughs> Not sure exactly what that means, but it sounds big. Another says, he's the strongest man in baseball, no doubt, and I really think he could hold his own in the world's strongest man competition. Another says, his arms are bigger than my legs. And another one said, he's stupid strong, just stupid strong. I kind of liked that one, but I thought about it. What does it mean to be stupid strong? <laughs> and I guess it's, it's the idea that he's so strong, he, feels, he leaves you feeling stupid trying to find the words to explain or describe his strength. It's indescribable, unexplainable strength. Now, Prince Fielder might be strong, but there are other strong guys in the world, other strong guys in baseball. I might even be able to convince my kids that I'm that strong. I might even be able to convince the high schoolers. Well, probably not. But if Prince Fielder is indescribably strong, how do we even begin to talk about the strength of the one who spoke all things into existence, who holds all things together by the power of his word, who calms the wind and the waves and controls earthquakes and hurricanes and raises people from the dead and conquered death himself? How do we describe that? I don't know. But that's the strength, that's the power of the one who keeps you, who holds you. Ephesians 1, 18-20 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The very same power, the very same strength that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is the same power and strength he uses to keep us, to hold us firmly in his grasp. Psalm 121, verse 3 says, He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Well, how does he keep us from stumbling? How does he keep us in the faith? How does he keep us holding fast to the word? 
Well, he does this, I think, in ways that are both internal to us and external to us. And I actually want to spend most of the time this morning focusing, uh, just for our purposes, on how he does that in ways that are external to us. But just as a quick review, some ways that he does that internally to us. He gives us a new heart, Ezekiel 36 says. A heart, takes out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. And that, that happens at salvation. And that heart of flesh is responsive to him and can be poked and prodded and guided and directed by him. And then he directs our hearts he says, uh, Paul says in, in 2 Thessalonians 3, he, ta- he talks uh, to, the, 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 to the Thessalonians and he says, May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. So he gives us a new heart. He directs those hearts. He directs our minds. He gives us the mind of Christ. Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2 that we have the mind of Christ. So he, di- he gives us a new heart. He directs our hearts. He gives us the mind of Christ. He gives us the Holy Spirit, references all over the Bible, but in 2 Thessalonians 2, specifically it talks about how we're sanctified by the Spirit. There's all this stuff going on inside of us. We have the God of the universe, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in us, and it it makes a difference in how we live. It affects our lives, and the Holy Spirit keeps us and holds us by, by keeping us in the faith and having us hold steadfast to the Word of God, and He directs our minds and our hearts, and He internally is doing all of this to us, but He's also doing, and I want us to pay attention to this, he's doing things external to us that keep us in the faith. Psalm 37, verse 23 says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Now watch this. When he falls, he he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. When we fall, we're not going to be hurled headlong. The Lord is holding our hands. We're not going to fall all completely away from the faith. He's going to bring us back. And I think he does this through orchestrating our lives and, and, and bringing circumstances into our lives that direct us and guide us and keep us on the path where he would want us to be. I think of this as, as uh, like kids going bowling and you see those, those inflatable bumpers down the, the lanes of a bowling lane and, and you can bowl a bowling ball down the lane and it can, it can bounce off of the bumpers on both sides but eventually it's going to make its way to the end because the bumpers are keeping it in the lane and God brings circumstances and events and people. He brings things into our lives that act as bumpers to those who are, are belong to him. He, he, he gives us those bumpers to keep us going down the lane and to keep us from, from veering off track. God is sovereign. Psalm 115 says, but our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And I believe he does whatever he pleases to bring things and people and circumstances into our lives to keep us, to hold us. One example of how he does this is, I think, through difficulties in our lives. Paul knew this. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is speaking about the the thorn in his flesh and He entreated the Lord three times to remove this thorn from him. And what did the Lord say to him? My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content. Can you say this? I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul understood God brings distresses, persecutions, difficulties, weaknesses. He brings these things in our lives so that we will see ourselves as weak and we see him as strong. And we depend on him, we treasure him, we want him. He brings these things into our lives to make us run to him. That's a way that he keeps us. He keeps us also through, through the use of 
this might sound strange, but the use of sin and, and evil. God's not the author of, of sin or the author of evil. He doesn't create evil, but God can intend it for his purposes. Genesis chapter 50, Joseph's brothers came before Joseph in Egypt after their father had died, and Joseph had the power to take vengeance against them at that point for what they had done to him. They'd sold him into slavery. And the brothers came to Joseph begging for mercy, and Joseph responded and said, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? Verse 20 of Genesis 50 says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. And what's the present result? To preserve many people alive. You meant evil. It was evil. God meant that same evil, but he meant it for the purpose of preserving many people. And I think God does that in our lives. He 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 allows evil and, and sin to come into our lives and people can persecute us or it can be even evil and sin that comes out of us. And God uses those things in our lives and he uses that to keep us, to make us depend on him, to make us run to him. Do you see the things in your lives that happen in that way? Do you see that that's, that's God keeping you? There are lots of other examples that we could go to in order to see how, how God orchestrates circumstances in our lives to keep us and to, to bring us back to him. But think about your own life. What's happened in your life that God has used to keep you? What has God used in your life to bring you back to him, to depend on him, to see him as your only treasure? Think about what's going on in your life right now. How is God using even that to keep you and to hold you? If we look at all of life like this, consider how that colors your perspective of everything that happens in life. Even as you're living in the middle of difficult circumstances, our perspective should be colored by how is God using this to keep me and hold me? How do I run to him out of this? Or if you're not his, if you don't belong to the Lord, if you haven't put your faith in, in Jesus and recognized him as, as your desperately needed Savior, Maybe God uses these circumstances to draw you in the first place. Maybe God's using this morning to draw you, to bring you. My wife Alice and I met at uh, UCLA. We went to, uh, to college together there. And we were involved in the same on-campus Christian fellowship. And there were two to 300 people probably over the course of the time that we were there that were involved in this group. And uh, looking back, uh, we've talked about this numerous times. There's a handful of people from that group Definitely not many, but there are a handful who completely turned from the faith. They've rejected the gospel. They've run away from God. By all appearances, they were never saved. And Alice and I have talked about this over the years, and we, we ask, what happened? What happened? And in these cases, this isn't necessarily universal, but in these cases, it seems that a common denominator for these people, is that they came from backgrounds without strong spiritual support. They didn't come from Christian families. They didn't have a solid home churches. They came to college. They were, they were introduced to the gospel. They were fed. They were involved in an on-campus group. But for whatever reason, when, when they left college and they went back home, they didn't get involved in a, in a local church, and they, there was no support. There was no structure around them. They, they were on their own, and over time, they just they fell away. They fell away and they rejected the gospel. And I don't think that's necessarily true of, of everyone, but in, in these particular cases, that, that happened. And Alice and I have talked about how that could have been her. Alice didn't come from a Christian home. She didn't have a, 
a solid home church. She was saved the summer before going to college, and she got involved in this Christian group on campus while there. And, but when she finished school and went back home, she didn't necessarily have any support structure that she would go back to when school was done. And so that's why I, uh, I tell her that God sent me to her for the purpose of keeping her, for the purpose of holding her on his behalf. I say that kind of teasing her a little bit, but I think it's absolutely true. To be honest, God sent her to me to do the same thing, but maybe it's the other other way around. It's a little more tangible. Consider this. We get married, and Alice inherits this whole Holbrook family, and she's absorbed into this clan, and there's this rich spiritual heritage that she inherits along with that. And then she's connected to this place, to Grace Church of Orange, where she serves and, and is served and where she ministers and is ministered to. Now think about this. What if Alice decided to walk away from the faith? What if she decided to reject the gospel? Now if that were the case, I can assure you there would be a whole mess of Holbrooks chasing down the road, running after her, led by her husband, by the way, But there would be all these people running after her. We'd be chasing her, pleading with her, exhorting her, encouraging her, begging her to come back, pointing her back to the cross. But here's the thing. We wouldn't be alone. It wouldn't just be Holbrooks. A lot of you in this room would be running out the door, running right after her, begging and pleading. That'd be true of me, too, if I walked away from the faith. That'd be true of most of you here, too. If you walked away, what would happen? See, for Alice, God is keeping her. And God uses family and church and people to keep her, to encourage her. Does that for me, for, for all of us who are saved. But God uses the people in our lives, and specifically, he uses the church to keep us. I want to just take a few minutes to think about that. God never intended the church to be a part of our lives. Think about that. God never intended the church to be a part of our lives. God intended the church to be our lives. I believe that the local church is the tip of the spear and how God holds on to us, how he keeps us. I want to look at just a a few examples of how God uses the local church to keep us. God uses the church to keep us through the protection of godly leadership. Paul tells the leaders of the Ephesian church in Acts chapter 20, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. See, the church leadership is charged with with guarding the flock, with shepherding the church, protecting them. God uses godly leadership to hold on to his people. God uses the local church through the encouragement of the brethren. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are, are traveling, and it says in verse 21, after they had preached the gospel to that city and had many, made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. But they're going around, they're encouraging, they're strengthening the souls, they're going to people. And that happens in the church. We encourage each other, we strengthen each other. We hold each other. God uses us to hold each other in the faith. 
Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, like what we're doing here this morning, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. God uses the church that we encourage each other. That's how he holds on to us. He holds on to us through the prayer of the believers. Back in Acts 14, verse 23, talking about Paul and Barnabas, it says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church and having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. Somehow God uses the prayer that we make for, for each other, that God uses those prayers and he holds on to us. He keeps us. He does it through testimonies. In Acts chapter 15, we see Paul and Barnabas um, traveling along and, and uh, it says in verse 3, um, therefore being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and they were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders and they reported all that God had done with them. That's what we do to each other all the time. We report what God, what's God doing in our lives and we share that and we... As we talk about the testimony of what God's doing in our lives, it reinforces his power and his strength in our lives, and God uses that to keep us, to hold us. He does it through the preaching of, of his word, Colossians 1.28. Paul says, and we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. God uses the proclamation of his word to present every man complete in Christ. God uses the church to, uh, to hold us through loving correction. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. We're to admonish and encourage and, and come alongside each other. That's how God holds on to us. God, God holds on to us through song as we come together. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, talks about speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. We come together and even something happens as we come together and we sing and we're singing to each other and we're singing to God and as we're worshiping and praising Him together, God uses that and He holds us and, and sanctifies us and brings us to Him. And We could go on with lots and lots of examples. The, the Bible is full of examples of how God uses the church to hold us and to keep us. Philippians 1.27, Paul tells the Philippians that they are to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's the highest calling you can have. Live worthy of the gospel. And he gives them three ways to do that. And in each of his instructions, these can only be carried out in the context of the local church. He tells them to be united in spirit. Be united with other believers. You can't be united with other believers if you're all by yourself. He tells them to be of one mind. The picture is that there's a lot of people coming together and it's like they all have one mind because they're all so saturated and filled with the scripture that it's like they all think the same. You can't be, be coming together with other people with one mind if you're all by yourself. And then he says that, that we're to be striving together for the faith of the gospel. You can't strive together, labor together, work together for the sake of the gospel. You can't do anything together by yourself. All these things happen in the context of the local church. Worthiness of the gospel comes in the context of living connected to other believers in a local assembly of believers. God uses us together within the body, within the structure as he's put it together, to hold us. This weighs heavily on me. I have to tell you, I love being a part of this church. I love ministering in this church. 
I love living as a, party, as a part of this body. I love Grace Church of Orange. But if I was honest, that's not why I'm so connected here. That's not the primary reason why. I need to be here. When I'm gone, I feel it. I can feel God's hold on me through this church, through his people. I've been encouraged here. I've been admonished here. I've been strengthened here. Maybe a little more specific. Church is much more than Sunday mornings. At the apex of this church, the pinnacle of all that happens here, the highest point of this church happens on Sunday mornings. This is the time, the only time, when the whole body gathers together, the God's word is proclaimed, we sing together, we encourage one another. Through fellowship, we give testimony of what God's doing in our lives. Through all of this, God is using this to hold us, to keep us. Let me be clear. Going to church doesn't make you any more saved, doesn't get you saved. Going to church doesn't make God like you better. But if one of God's primary ways of keeping me is through the local church, and if Sunday mornings is the apex of the ministry of the church, if that's how God is keeping me, then I want to be right in the center of his ironclad grip. I want to be here. I want to be in his hands. I want to be in his church. I need to be here. I need to be here to sing God's praise, to be with God's people, to be reminded of God's promises, to see God's perspective, to feel God's presence, to witness God's power, to submit to God's prerogative, to understand God's purposes. I need to be here. God is keeping me. And Sunday mornings is an important way that he does that. I want to be where he's keeping me. Well, we're at it. One other thing on this. We're here for 75 minutes on a Sunday morning. And yes, I did the math. I didn't even need a spreadsheet. That makes up about one half of 1% of our week. It's not a huge sacrifice, but the stakes are high. I'm not being legalistic. I just want to emphasize that this is an important component of the normative Christian life. There's 75 minutes in this service. And I want to be here for every one of those minutes. My wife and my family, they know, I place a premium importance on being here at church on time for the service. We're not always perfect in this, but in our family, it's a massive priority. Again, not out of legalism, but it's important to be here. I know what it's like to be tired and to to have a hard time waking up. I know what it's like to have to get kids up and get them ready and out the door. I know what it's like to get caught up with fellowship outside. That in itself is important. But I want to make a statement to myself about the importance of gathering together as one body on Sunday mornings. I want to make a statement to my family about the importance of what goes on here. I need to make a statement to my soul about the importance of what God is doing in this time. And being here for every minute makes a statement of its importance. If it's important to gather with God's people for worship, for prayer, for teaching, if God uses that to hold me, I'm going to make every effort to be here every minute. For those who turn to him, those who put their faith in Jesus, he keeps us from stumbling. He keeps us in the faith. He makes us stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. That which brings us joy in that day that we stand blameless before him is the same thing that gives us joy 
today, in the here and now, even in the midst of sorrow, even in the midst of pain, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of suffering, because all that happens in life points to the ultimate joy that overcomes all the tribulation in this life. It's all a backdrop. Now, Jude 24 and 25 really, in some ways, is a summary of perhaps the biggest, most important chapter, if I can say that, in the whole Bible, Romans chapter 8. And in our last few minutes here, I just want to quickly look at Romans chapter 8 to unpack this just a little bit further. If you'd turn there, Romans chapter 8. Verse 1, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. We're blameless for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Skip down to verse 10. It says, and if Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. Christ is in you. He's giving you life through his righteousness. Righteousness is tied to eternal life. That's what makes us blameless so we can come into the presence of his glory without being consumed and we can have great joy. Verse 14 says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We were rebels against God, and we're adopted as sons of God, as daughters of God. Faith in Jesus makes us sons of God. And watch what happens here in verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We're heirs with Christ. The same inheritance, the same eternal glory, the same joy is our inheritance. If indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is perspective setting. This is, this is life-changing. This is world-altering. The glory that is to come. Being in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. You see the joy ahead of you, and anything that happens in this world pales by comparison. It's just, it's just a backdrop for this great joy, being in the presence of the glory of God, blameless. So there's anticipation for that time, and the trials of this world, the suffering, the, the obstacles, the pain. It all just sets us up for this great glory that is to come where he is our ultimate satisfaction. He's our ultimate joy. God will satisfy all of our longings, fulfill our deepest needs, our wants, our desires. But don't you feel it sometimes that it's just not right right now? We live in a fallen world and this world isn't right and we feel it through all the tribulation and the, and the, and the difficulties and the troubles that we have and it's not right. And we struggle with sin. And, and there's something in us that longs for, that desires, that just says, God, make everything right. Are you ready for that? So I, 
Are you ready to, for God to make everything right? And we, we see that even creation is, is longing for that. We see in verses 19 through 22 here of Romans chapter 8 that, uh, that creation is personified. And it says, For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. There's this personification of creation, just groaning and longing and wanting and saying, God, make things right. Sin has corrupted this world and restore it to how you intended it to be. Where we can be in your presence, in the presence of your glory, blameless with great joy. And creation is groaning and longing. And the next few verses here in Romans 8 talk about how we ourselves are groaning and longing. And it's, it's in us to want this, for, to want God to make it right. And Then in verse 26, it talks about how even the Holy Spirit is groaning on our behalf. And there's all this groaning going on, longing for God to make things right. And then we get that great promise in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That God is going to work all this out for good. And the ultimate good is explained in the following verses. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's what he's working all things out together for good for, is so that we would look like Jesus. Why do we care about looking like Jesus? Because looking like Jesus means that we are righteous, that we are blameless, and we can come into the presence of his glory with great joy. That's, that's, that's what it's all about, that we would look like Jesus and we can bask in the glory in, of, of his presence and we can worship him with great joy. And that's the promise that he is going to cause all these things that are happening in this world, he's, he's causing them to bring about for us so that ultimately we will be brought to be in the image of Jesus and stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. And he emphasizes that in verse 30, Romans 8. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. He's bringing us to glory. He's bringing us to glorification. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Who's going to stop God from doing this? Who's going to stop God from bringing his own to the point of being blameless in the presence of his glory? No one is going to stop him for that, from that because that power and that strength that he uses to hold us will bring us to that, to that day. Verse 32, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? He will do it. And then we get that great promise there at the end of Romans 8. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, including our sin, by the way, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing is going to be able to separate us from the love of God because he is going to bring us to the point of completion where we look like Jesus and we can be in the presence of his glory. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, to Jesus Christ our Lord, be all glory, majesty, dominion, and power before all time, now, and forever. And Lord, we come to you acknowledging 
your glory and majesty, dominion and authority over all things. And God, we give you praise and we give you worship and we give you worship out of, out of hearts that are filled with joy. God, because you hold us and you keep us to that day when we would be blameless and be, and be in the presence of your glory. God, we're so thankful. And God, I, I pray that we would just come to understand the, the power of, uh, of the truth of these verses and that uh, we would cling to them with every step in our lives. And we pray this in your name. Amen.